I don't know if you've ever heard of Christmas in July, but that's kind of how I feel right now because of the gift that you are about to receive. It was about 10 years ago that our church brought on an intern to work in our missions department. At the time, Whitney Payne was in seminary here in Austin, and she came to our church to help and to serve and be a part of student ministries and missions and all those kind of things. And in the last 10 years, we have had the privilege, the blessing of watching now Whitney Wiseman grow into a phenomenal leader who runs all of our missions programs, Mobile Loaves and Fishes, our trips to Haiti, everything that we do as a church that is outreach and missions oriented and is a phenomenal communicator of scripture. She and her husband, Justin, and of course, their son, Byron, are such an integral part of our church, and I am so excited that Whitney is going to be bringing the message this weekend. I want to ask you right now, if you will, stand to your feet and give a monster Lake Hills Church welcome to one of our own, Whitney Weisman. Good morning. Good morning, Lake Hills Church. I am so happy to be here this morning and so excited for what God has for us. My name is Whitney Wiseman. Pastor Mac was right. And I am, in fact, married to that very cute keyboard player that you just saw up here. And we do have a magical 18-month-old. He's literally the nicest person that I know, for now, anyways. He... Like, he might be a wizard. He is awesome. Like, he is so great. We're having so much fun with him. We moved to Austin 10 years ago. I started working here um, when I was in seminary, working with our students, because they're so fun and awesome, and transitioned to missions and mobile loaves and fishes, partnering with our orphanage in Haiti, and um, some men's and women's Bible study stuff. Basically, I don't like to brag in front of the other staff members, but I, I have the most fun job. My job is the best. I get to see so many of you serving outside of these walls just really living out the vision to be the community of Christ and to grow the community of Christ. And so I'm just so pleased to get to be a part of this church and get to be a part of what God is doing here. As we get started this morning, I'm going to take a poll of the audience. And by a show of hands, I would love to see who, who roomed with their best friend in college. Anybody room with your best friend in college? A few of you. Okay. Now keep your hands raised if that worked out well for you. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it does. Sometimes not so much. Sometimes you're just better being best friends than roommates. I lived with five of my best friends in college. I went to school in the bustling metropolis of Abilene, Texas. And um, we lived in a cute house ne next to campus. And it worked out really wonderfully for us this time. We, um, so it was five of our best friends. And the really fun part was that four of our other best friends lived next door to us. Their house was called the left house. Our house was called the right house. Most people thought that our name, our house got named because it was next to the left house, but those people didn't realize that at the wise old age of 20, we were always right. <laughs> so we lived in the right house, and we had so much fun. Actually, we had a perfectly um, appropriate amount of fun because my mom and dad are watching, and we studied really, really hard. 
And there was one summer in particular that I remember, anytime anyone in our house left, there was five of us, people were coming and going all of the time. Anytime anyone left, one of my roommates would yell from wherever she was in the house to make good decisions. It was a very mom thing to say, right? And every friend group kind of has the mom and dad that like, like is everybody eaten enough? Has everybody slept enough? But it was probably good. Our moms weren't there, so we definitely needed to hear this advice. And after laughing it off and rolling our eyes for months, I started to really internalize and really appreciate what good advice that was. You see, wherever we were going and whoever we were going there with, whatever we were doing, we were going to be faced with decisions, with choices. It's an inevitable part of life. In fact, research has shown that the average American adult makes 35,000 decisions every single day. Now, I am not a math person, don't speak numbers well. In fact, married a math major for more than just his good hair. But I do know that 35,000 decisions is a lot of decisions, right? These decisions range in size and weight and impact on our lives. Um, but literally just thinking about it is exhausting. Think about all of the decisions that you've made at 7.25 a.m. already today. Maybe whether or not you're going to hit the snooze button when your alarm went off, how many cups of coffee you're going to drink, what you're going to have for breakfast, what you're going to wear, which route you would take to church, whether or not you're going to come to church in the first place. Good decision there. Gold stars for everyone. Now, these decisions are probably pretty simple decisions, rather small on the scale, but they are decisions nonetheless causing us to use some sort of brain power and think about the consequences and consider our future a little bit. But then we have those big decisions. I bet that each and every one of us in this room is facing, if not one, the multiple big decisions that will have a big effect on our lives. Maybe it's a financial decision that could really affect your family. Maybe you're considering whether or not you should foster or adopt. Maybe um, you're considering a career change or transition. And I know some of you are thinking about where you should go to college, what you should major in. These are the types of decisions where it would be wise to take the good advice from my roommate and make good decisions, right? Because those are the decisions that will have effect on us right now and probably our future and probably others as well. So that's the million-dollar question. How do we make good decisions? How do we take that advice from my college roommate? Now, I should pause here with the disclaimer that making good decisions, though it does certainly benefit us, we reap good consequences from good decisions, um, it's not solely a selfish endeavor. As Kristen and Miles just talked about in the offering, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it tells us that whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So that means each action that we take, every step that we make, every decision and choice that we land on should bring glory to God and point others to Jesus. So that takes it up a notch, right? So not only are we trying to make good decisions, but we're trying to make wise, discerning, God-honoring decisions in our lives. Makes the million-dollar question a billion-dollar question. How do we make wise decisions? And how do we face those decisions with determination? Now, today we are continuing a sermon series that Pastor Max started several weeks ago called Biography, where we're taking a look at the lives of people in Scripture, real lives, 
real struggles, real faith, and in today's instance, real hard decisions. We are going to look at the life of Esther and see how she faced her decision with determination. Now, Esther's story is collected in the book, wait for it, of Esther that is found in the Old Testament. It's wedged between Nehemiah and Job, and it's, it's a short story, but it is powerful. It is full of drama and destruction of decisions and doing. And I highly encourage you, if you haven't read her story, that you take the time to read it. It's just 10 chapters, and it will make a big impact on your life. But for today's purposes, I'm going to catch us up to speed a little bit before we jump into the scripture passage for today. All right. So in the beginning of Esther, we find that the Jews are living in exile, meaning they have been scattered from the land that God had promised them, and they are being ruled by foreign kings in a foreign land. Esther is one such Jew, and she's being raised by her cousin Mordecai in the absence of her parents. King Xerxes is on the throne at this time, and King Xerxes is a man with a lot of power and a lot of land. In fact, scripture tells us that his kingdom stretches from India to Ethiopia. So this man with a lot of power and a lot of land has a lot of wealth, and he likes to have a lot of fun. In the beginning of the book of Esther, King Xerxes is throwing lavish parties and banquets to display all of his power and all of his wealth before other important people in the kingdom. And at the end of one of these parties, after days of dancing and dining and endless wine flowing into golden goblets, he has one final thing to flaunt. Perhaps the original trophy wife, his wife, Queen Vashti. Now, Queen Vashti was beautiful. In fact, I imagine that she looked like an ancient Beyonce. And she refuses to show up when she's summoned by the king with all her single ladies, her fan-blown hair, and her smooth dance moves for the king and all of his drunken friends. And this man, with a lot of power, a lot of wealth, a lot of land, also has a lot of ego. So he takes the advice from his not-so-trusty advisors who recommend that he banish Queen Vashti, which he does, and then boom, there is a vacancy in the palace. Now these same advisors suggest that to fill this vacancy, they gather all of the beautiful unmarried women across the kingdom and gather them together and enter them to what is essentially a beauty contest of sorts. So Esther is in this group of women that is gathered together and brought to the palace. But she takes the wise advice from her cousin Mordecai, who suggests that she keep it on the DL that she's a Jew. So nobody knows about Esther's Jewish heritage. While Esther is there... All of the ladies, in fact, go through a year of preparation, a year of beauty treatments as they prepare to be presented before the king. Yes, you heard me right. A year-long spa day. Yeah, it's biblical. Biblical. So in the midst of this process, Esther finds favor with those overseeing the process. And not only that, when it is her turn to be presented to the king... In the most dramatic rose ceremony yet, the king offers Esther the final rose, and she is named Queen Esther. Now, this Queen Esther from House Xerxes, first of her name, unblemished, first among men, protector of the realm, lady regent, breaker of chains, and mother of dragons. Well, maybe not the dragon part. This queen finds herself in a position of power that she never anticipated. And while all of this, while all of this is happening inside of the palace, something else is happening outside of the palace. 
Mordecai continues to show up every single day to check on Esther at the palace gates. And while he is there, he refuses to bow down before powerful men who come and go from the palace. Now, this really irks these powerful men. And one man in particular, for storytelling purposes, our evil villain for today, Haman. So Haman, who also happens to be second to the king, makes it his sole purpose, his life ambition, to not just take out Mordecai, but to take out every Jew across the kingdom. Haman casually mentions to King Xerxes, did you know there's a group of people who refuse to follow your laws? You know what? I have a plan to take care of it. And not only that, I'm willing to pay for it. So with the king leaving the king little to worry about and his pockets sufficiently lined, he signs off on a decree that on a day determined by the roll of, the di- roll of a dice, that the Jews will be destroyed. Now, rightly so, this deeply distresses Jews all across the kingdom. Their hearts are burdened with their potential doom, and they go into mourning. Mordecai continues to show up every day, but this time he's wearing his mourning clothes, a grieving uniform of sorts. And one of Queen Esther's attendants notices something's going on with Mordecai. Something's not right. So Esther has this attendant do some investigating, which is where we pick up in today's passage. So if you have your Bibles, you turn with me to Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 7. So Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hathach a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of the Jews. He asked Hathach to show it to Esther and to explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathach to direct her to go to the king and beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathach returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hathach, go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials, even the people in the provinces, know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathach gave Esther's message to Mordecai. And Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather all of the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. Then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. Esther is faced with a big decision. Actually, that's an understatement. Esther is faced with a huge decision, a decision of life or death. And not just her life and death, but the life and death of every Jew across the kingdom. Let the weight of that sink in for a minute. If it was me, I would be paralyzed I, confession, I don't love making decisions. I do like making lists. I love options. But then I get overwhelmed when I try to, like, narrow them down and pick one thing. 
Like, don't put me in the cereal aisle of the grocery store. Don't ask me where we should go out to eat for dinner. Definitely don't hand me the remote when it's time to pick a movie to watch on Netflix. I don't even like picking out my favorite color. Like, picking just one? I was like starting to sweat just thinking about it. It's stressing me out. And all of a sudden, this has turned into a personal therapy session. So enough about me. Let's talk about you. Who here likes the pressure of a big decision? Who, like, thrives when they're in the hot seat? A few of you. See, that's not, that's not right. That's wrong. That's, I'm going to pray for you people. Okay, who like me would avoid it like the plague? That is an appropriate response, I feel like. But here we see Esther face this decision with determination. But she doesn't do it all at once, and she doesn't do it on her own. In fact, Esther's first asset is her connection to her community. I see that even though she's been removed from the Jewish community... And she's secluded in the palace. She maintains this connection with her family and with Mordecai. And with the guidance and support of her, connect- of her community and her family, she's able to process the information, the decision that she has to make. If you've ever been in the room with a founder of Mobile Loaves and Fishes, a local organization here that we partner with at Lakehouse Church that serves food to the homeless, you will probably have heard him say that The leading cause of homelessness is not what you might initially think. It's not mental illness or substance abuse or a series of poor decisions, though those are are often contributing factors. The leading cause of homelessness is, in fact, the catastrophic loss of family. See, when we're disconnected from people who love us and support us and will speak wise counsel and truth into our lives, the opportunity for us just to drift through life and make poor choices greatly broadens. We know that life can be hard and the opportunity for error is tremendous. But when we are tethered to our community, to people who love us and support us, and point us in the direction that God has for us, that gap greatly decreases, right? You see, at the Community First Village, there are... It's a a, a housing neighborhood for people who were formerly homeless, brought up off of the street. And houses are clustered together where front porches face each other. So you can basically not not know your neighbor if you live at the community first village. And that, Alan Graham says, is the beginning of healing and restoration. Because we are called to reflect the image of God who is relational and key Community is key when we're making big, important, impactful decisions. Now, we see the stark contrast between those who are and those who aren't surrounded by wise counsel and community when we look at Xerxes versus Esther's decision-making. You see, Xerxes, he thinks only about himself, rather for himself, and eventually he's ruled by the decisions that he makes rather than ruling over the decisions that are before him. In Mordecai and Esther's relationship, we see wise counsel come to life. You see, first, Mordecai holds Esther accountable. He calls her out. He speaks hard truth in verse 13. Don't think that in your prestigious position, you will avoid destruction of all of the Jews. Now, that's a hard truth and probably a tough cookie for Esther to swallow. But truth nonetheless, and truth that she needed to process in order to make a wise God-honoring decision. 
So he calls her out, but next we see that he calls her in. He reminds her who she is and who she's a part of and who she serves as her God. Esther, this is about more than just you. This is about God's people. This is about all of the Jews. So he calls her out, he calls her in, and finally we see him call her up. He says, perhaps, Esther, you have been put here for such a time as this. If he had been holding a microphone, that would be the perfect time for a mic drop. He offers her encouragement and motivation, reminding her who she is and who God is calling her to be and the position that she has been given. So when we're faced with big decisions, do you have a community of people who are going to call you out and speak hard truth into your life? We're going to call you back in and say, hey, you're, you're going too far. Or we're going to call you up to the plans and purposes that God has for you. If you don't have a community, take a look around. Because that is one reason we exist as a church, as a family of faith, to support one another, to speak truth into each other's lives. Because community is key when we're making big decisions. Next, we see Esther pause to prepare. Now, Esther must have been listening to the Fearless Mom podcast because she takes the wise advice of Julie Richard, who says that when you have a plan, you're less likely to panic. She asked Mordecai in verse 16 to gather together all of the Jews of Susa and fast for me. She does this not to highlight her own actions, not to, to point out the risk that she is about to take, but because she takes seriously the call that God has placed on her life and she sees the need to remove distractions and focus on the task at hand. You see, prayer and fasting help us in our decision-making process. Fasting is abstaining, giving something up, or limiting something in our lives. Oftentimes it's food or water, as it is here in Esther, but it's bigger than that, and it's more than that. It is removing the clutter and the distraction and the consumption and the obsession with our own wants and our own needs and desires to make room for what God has for us, to make room to more clearly hear God's voice and see God at work to give us time to pray and communicate, to participate in the relationship that Jesus made possible for us. You see, you can't know what someone wants you to do unless you ask them. Now, I know this is true because for the last 11 years, I've been trying to get Justin Wiseman to read my mind. And he has not mastered that yet, even though I will continue to try. In the meantime, we have to communicate. If I want to know what he wants to do on a Saturday, I need to ask. If we want to know where God wants us to move, we need to ask. If we want wisdom, James 1.5 says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. You see, prayer positions our hearts for God's purposes, God's plan, God's will, and God's timing. And isn't that what we want? We're faced with hard times and challenging decisions. We're seeking God's best for our lives as we face decisions with determination. Next, we see Esther being led by God, by the guidance of God. Throughout her entire life, God has positioned her providentially in different positions to be used for God's purposes. Several years ago, I was on a mission trip with a team from Lake Hills Church in northern Uganda. Now, we were working with a missionary team who helped resettle villagers who had been displaced during a war, helping them with seed sharing and and providing education for pastors and, and just long-term connection. 
And on this particular day, we were working with this team to make initial connection with a new village. And we would make introductions, and the, the missionary team would come behind us and later build a long-term relationship with these individuals. So on this day, we're moving as a group from hut to hut, and we're being led by our translator, Agnes. And over time, we start to realize that the grass around us is getting taller and taller and taller, and the distance between houses is getting further and further and further, and until eventually the grass is above our heads and there are no houses to be seen, and we keep walking, and I start thinking, oh my goodness, we might be lost in the African bush. So it's around this time that team members start like whispering like, do you think Agnes knows where she's going? Is it possible that we're lost? And like we're like taking inventory of supplies. Like I have two bottles of water. I have five almonds. We have two cliff bars over here. Did anyone bring a compass? Why didn't anyone think to bring a compass? And finally, I just ask Agnes, um, excuse me, but do you know where we're going? To which she whips around and confidently says, Whitney, Jesus will lead the way. Now, we're on a mission trip, so I just smile and nod because what else am I supposed to do? But really inside, I'm thinking, I sure hope so, but I don't see him anywhere. Eventually, Agnes did lead us out of the African bush to join our other team members. But Agnes knew one thing to be true. The same thing that we see that is true in Esther's story is that God is indeed guiding us, leading us, if only we would follow the most curious thing about Esther's story and the book of Esther, to me, is that the name of God is not mentioned, not even once. And that does not mean that God is not at work and that we do not clearly see it. You see, from the first chapter of Genesis all throughout Scripture and in our lives today, we are being guided by God. God is at work in our lives and around us. That even when we do not feel like God is with us, to know that God is, in fact, with us. But when we do not hear the voice of God, God is speaking, but perhaps in a still, soft voice. When we do not see God at work, that maybe God is asking us to take a step back and look at the big picture, or maybe to step aside and look from a different angle, or perhaps God is calling us, inviting us to lean in even more into God's truth and to know that God is, in fact, working and moving in our messy and complicated and conflicted lives. And God wants to use each one of us just like God used Esther. Now, finally, we see Esther, this decision, this discernment process culminate to a climax where she courageously and confidently commits to the cause. She says, if I perish, I perish. Now, I don't know if I've ever been that confident about a decision. But Esther, she doesn't make this decision on a whim, right? She takes a step of faith. She trusts God. And she hopes for something more. She hopes that God will save her. And that is easier said than done when life is hard and messy and decisions are right in front of us. Do we trust what God says about us more than what other people say about us or think about us or expect from us? Do we lean into the truth that God is working and moving? 
Do we trust God's timing over our own circumstances? Because that trust leads to confidence in our calling. But even more than that, that trust leads to confidence in God's capabilities. See, Esther continues to act in wisdom and discernment. And when she does approach the king, he extends his golden scepter and grants her life for one more day. And then he asked her, my queen, what is it that you want? Which I love this part. Esther cleverly invites the king and Haman to not one but two banquets in their honor. So smart. Speaking their language. They love to party. So at the end of the second banquet, the king asks once again, Esther, my queen, what is it that you want up into half of the kingdom and it will be yours? And it is at this point that Esther reveals her identity as a Jew, and Haman's plan to destroy her and her people. Now, this so enrages the king that he has Haman immediately hanged on a gallows. A gallows, side note, that Haman had built for Mordecai. Oh, the irony. And then a new decree is issued that when the day of destruction comes, the Jews may defend themselves. And when that day comes, they defend themselves, and they are victorious. See, like Esther, we are called to face decisions with determination and to do the things that God has called us to do, to commit to the cause. God is doing something new in the world and making all things right and partnering, asking us to partner with him. You see, we are called to collaborate. So we have the privilege and the responsibility to join God in the renewal of all things, to use the power, the position, and the influence that you have been given right where you are right now because who knows but perhaps God has put you in that position for such a time as this. Esther's story, in the end we see, of, in the end of Esther's story, we see that God does indeed work all things together to the, for the good of those who trust God and are called according to his purposes. We see that God's plan for good and for salvation cannot be thwarted and that good news is true for us today. Esther is a model of hope and of trust. She takes a step of faith. She trusts God and she hopes that God can save us, can save her. And God, in fact, can save us, will save us, and has already saved us by sending Jesus to die on a cross for our sins so that we could be in a relationship with our creator. And that is the biggest decision that each and every one of us face. We can't avoid decisions, and we certainly can't avoid this decision. Will we submit our lives to Jesus, make Jesus Lord of our lives, and accept the salvation that has already been accomplished for us? Would you bow your heads with me this morning while we consider this decision? Because if you haven't made that decision, it's simple. All you have to do is admit that We've made mistakes, we've made poor choices, sins that separate us from a holy God. And believe that Jesus died for our sins so that we could be restored, that we could be reconnected to our source of life. And then to choose to step into that relationship, to commit to the cause of Christ. If you're ready to make that decision this morning, all you have to do is pray right where you are, still and silently. Jesus, I 
admit that I've sinned, that I've separated myself from you, God, but I believe that you died on a cross to bring me back, to restore me, to be used for your purposes, God. I commit my life. I choose to step into that relationship this morning. Now, if you made that decision with everyone's head still bowed, I want to ask you to do two things. If you would fill out the Connect card in today's program, mark the box that said, I committed my life to Christ today, and hand it to someone in a blue shirt or take it out to the hub as you leave today, because we want to celebrate with you. We want to be a community that helps you take that next step, that supports you, because connection to community is key. Next, we want to celebrate with you, and we want you to know that this is the moment that you made the biggest and best decision of your life by stepping into a relationship with Jesus. And you can mark that moment simply by raising your hand right where you are. We have a tradition here at Lake Hills Church that as you put your hands down, we put our hands together and we tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.